All right. Now, for the message, we're going to talk today about community, how Jesus lived in community, and then my recent experience of community in my life. So to start off, we're going to go back to the very beginning. We're going to look at Genesis 1 and see how we were created to live in community. So Genesis 1, 26 through 28. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. So in this passage, I want you to notice, first of all, that the Trinity exists in community. God said, let us make mankind in our image. It wasn't just God the Father present at creation. The Trinity exists in community, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. They created together, and then they made us in their image. If God chooses to exist in community, how much more do I need community in my life? We were created with an innate need to be with other people and to be in community. And then the first thing that God said to Adam and Eve was be fruitful and increase in number. Well, there's lots of reasons why God told them to increase in number. But I think one of those reasons was family, community. They, God knew that they needed more human beings around them to interact with and to relate with. We were made to live in community. And then we see this in Jesus. Jesus comes to earth. He's the person in the Godhead that comes to earth. He walks the earth and he shows us how to live on this earth as a human being in relationship with the Father and the Holy Spirit. And he didn't come down on a cloud and then put himself in a castle and remove himself from all of humanity. No, he came as a baby and he set himself inside of a family, a family that lived in a town that had a community. Jesus had brothers. He had a mom. He had a dad. He had neighbors. He developed a trade. He was a carpenter. He had co-workers. Jesus had a whole life. He had a whole community around him. But the time of his life that we really know the most about is the three years when he was doing active ministry. So when I look at the time of Jesus's active ministry, I view his community as like an image of concentric circles, okay? So circles that are inside of each other and that kind of go from small to big. So Jesus had levels or layers of community around him. Not everyone that he encountered knew him at the same level. He didn't give everyone the same access to him, to his heart, to his thoughts, to his teachings. He didn't spend the same amount of time with every single person. Some people were closer to him and some people were further away from him. So if we look at that circle in the inner circle, the red circle, I would place the Trinity, God, the father and the Holy spirit. Jesus was still in community with the Trinity when he was on earth. He had the Holy Spirit inside of him, and then he existed in constant communication with God the Father. 
in John 10 30 it says I and the father are one Jesus talked about the father constantly he would take time and go off by himself to pray he maintained that close relationship with God the father and then in Luke 10, we're going to come back to Luke 10 a couple different times and jump around in that passage. But in Luke 10, verse 21, it says, At that time, Jesus, full of joy, through the Holy Spirit, said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and learned and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for this is what you were pleased to do. All things have been committed to me by the, my Father. No one knows who the Son is except the Father, and no one knows, knows who the Father is except the Son, and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. So I think this passage really illuminates the relationship between the Trinity. I mean, the Trinity really is the most symbiotic relationship that exists. They are so interconnected and work well so together. So Jesus is here on earth. He's human. He's doing ministry. The Holy Spirit's inside of him. And the Holy Spirit manifests inside of his human body as joy in this moment. And then Jesus, full of joy, expresses his relationship with God the Father. Okay? So that's the red circle. So moving outward, the next biggest circle is Jesus' inner circle of friends. Jesus had three guys, three friends that are considered his inner circle. Their names are Peter, James, and John. So Jesus had special interactions with these three guys that he didn't share with other people. For instance, in Matthew 17, these were the three guys that got to go up on the mountain with him when he was transfigured, and they got to experience that. When he raised Jairus' daughter from the dead, these were the three guys that got to go into the room with him and watch him perform that miracle. In Luke 8, 51, it says, When he arrived at the house of Jairus, he did not let anyone go in with him except Peter, John, and James. Then in Matthew 26, on the night of the Last Supper, right before Jesus was arrested, it says that Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to them, sit here while I go over there and pray. He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him, and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. So the two sons of Zebedee, those are James and John. They were brothers. But I find this to be one of the most profound moments. Jesus knows what is coming. He knows he is going to be crucified. He knows what he has to face the next day. He knows that it is about to begin. And Jesus seeks community. He goes off by himself and he seeks community with the Trinity. He goes and he allows, allows himself to be immersed in God's presence. If Jesus needed that in the face of trauma or tragedy, how much more do I need to seek community with the Trinity? But then beyond that, he tells his three closest friends, come along, I need you. I think that this shows just how close he was to those guys, that he trusted them. Even though they fell asleep later that night and didn't keep watch, he trusted them. They had a close relationship. So the next circle moving outward is his 12 disciples. Jesus had 12 guys that were with him for the whole of that three years. They traveled together. They ate together. They ministered together. They raised the dead. They healed the sick. They fed the 5,000. They were together constantly, and he taught them continually. 
And there were a lot of times where Jesus would take the 12 and he would go off with the 12 away from the crowds. Sometimes he would even like take a boat and flee away from the crowds because he had things for these specific 12 guys that he needed to teach them and things that they needed to experience together. These guys had more access to Jesus than the crowds did. They got to experience other things. These apostles, these disciples, were the eyewitnesses to the life, teachings, miracles, and finally the death and resurrection of Jesus. And this was one of their roles. One of the reasons that he had these 12 disciples is because there needed to be people that had a clear and accurate testimony of the Messiah. If we go back to Luke 10... Jesus is full of joy and he communicates about how he knows the father. Luke 10, 23 says, then he turned to his disciples and said privately, blessed are the eyes that see what you see. So even in the crowds, he has communication with his, with his disciples that are private. So moving out to the next circle, this is where things can get a little bit muddy. And I almost started to like make a graphic where circles like intersected and we had multiple things. I just decided not to, but life doesn't really fit in pretty little rainbow circles. I would like it to, but it really doesn't. So you might think that you would create these circles a little differently and that's fine. We're just going to kind of go with it for the sake of the illustration. So the next circle I have that's a little bit bigger is Jesus's other followers. So people like Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. There were people that were not included in the 12 that were still very close to Jesus. Wilson talked last week about Mary and Martha and Lazarus and the relationship that Jesus had with them and the stories that we have about those three, three people. Jesus was close to them. He knew them. They knew Jesus. He went to their house. He wept with them. Jesus had a close relationship with these people. Then, moving out, the 72. In Luke 10, the beginning of Luke 10, this is when Jesus sends out the 72. He sends them out ahead of him to the towns that he was planning to go to. And he says, go, heal the sick, raise the dead, cast out demons, prepare the way for me to come. I have to think that Jesus knew these 72 people. I don't think that he just kind of like randomly picked people out of the crowd and sent them on their way. I think that these people knew Jesus, that Jesus knew them, and that they existed in relationship. That he trusted them, he had equipped them, he had taught them, they knew what they were going to do. And we can know that there were people that Jesus had taught and equipped outside of the 12 because of what happens after Jesus is crucified and resurrected. In Acts 1, the disciples talk about having to pick a new 12th disciple. Judas Iscariot had betrayed Jesus. He had subsequently died. And they needed to have 12. So in Acts 1.21, it says, Therefore, it is necessary to choose one of the men who have been with us the whole time the Lord Jesus was living among us, beginning from John's baptism to the time when Jesus was taken up from us. For one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. So this shows us that there were people other than the 12 disciples, probably including the 72, probably including Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. There were people that were with Jesus for all the high points of his ministry. And one of those guys was able to step in and fill in as the role of the 12th disciple. And then lastly, the biggest circle is we have the masses or the crowds. 
These were the people that heard Jesus teach. They saw Jesus pass by on the streets. They were miraculously fed by Jesus by five loaves and two fish. Maybe they were healed by him or saw him heal someone. These were the people that laid the palm branches on the ground and shouted Hosanna as he rode into town triumphantly. These were the people that cried out for him to be crucified. These were the people that bore witness to his death. They didn't know him personally. Maybe they never had a personal conversation with him, but they knew who he was. They were touched by his story, touched by his ministry. Maybe they had a family member that was healed by him or a friend of a friend of a friend. Each one of us, not just Jesus, each one of us influences so many more people in our lives than we will ever realize. We each have this wide circle of influence. Jesus' influence stands as the greatest of all time. So the purple circle we have up there, that represents the amount of people that Jesus actually interacted with through his time as a human on this earth. But if we talk about Jesus' influence for all time, I mean, that circle doesn't fit in this room. Jesus influenced every person. First service, I said it was Jim Baker. I found out it actually was Robbie Dawkins who talked recently about how any person who writes the date on a piece of paper bears witness to the lordship of Jesus Christ because our whole dating system, BC and AD, is based off of the life of Jesus. Jesus's influence is the greatest of all time. So concentric circles. (laughs) You and I, we have circles just like Jesus had. We have people that are closer to us, people that are further away from us. We just can't simply be close to every single person we know. It's just not humanly possible to maintain 20, 50, 100, 1,000 super intimate relationships. We have to have layers or levels of intimacy. And along with that, just like Jesus, not everybody has the same access to you or to me. We grant people access to know us, to really know us at different levels. And then the community builds around us. And today I want to talk to you guys as part of my community a little bit about something that recently happened in my family. Um, So first let's pray about that. (laughs) So God, I thank you for these people. I thank you that they are my community. I pray that you would open our hearts to each other, that we would be bonded together more as a community today. Amen. So you guys in this room are part of my community. You're like my green circle or my blue circle. You guys are a part of my circle. Whether this is your first time here or not, you're a part of my wider community. And you have impacted my life. So most of you, since you're in my community, you know that in early January, my son Noah, who's eight, had a cardiac arrest. We were on a cruise as a family. And that event, it really had the possibility of being a life-altering event, of being a life-shattering event, of being like the defining moment where our life kind of pivots after that moment. And it really hasn't been because of the community that's around us, because of the community that supported us 
during those first few minutes, those first few hours, and then the seven or eight weeks that have come afterward. So because you're a part of my community, because you have a piece of the story, I'm going to share with you some of the details about what happened that night. Um, I'm going to share about this other times through other lenses. Today, I'm going to share with you about, about the story through the lens of community. But there are going to be, there's a lot I'm not going to say today, a lot about how my soul was doing during that time, how God comforted my soul, how good our Father is. There's so much that I'm not going to be able to say today that I'll share other times. So we had gone on a cruise. My parents, my husband Grant, my three boys, we had gone and we had had an absolutely fantastic time. It was the week after Christmas and it was warm and it was wonderful and the boys had eaten probably their weight in soft serve ice cream. Like the buffet room on a cruise ship is amazing if you've never been on a cruise. I mean, they ate so much ice cream. We had played laser tag on the 20th deck of the ship late at night as a family, which was super fun. We had gone to St. Thomas, Tortola, and then on the last day we went to Nassau. And Grant and I took an excursion with the three boys. We went to a private island called Blue Lagoon, and they had beach soccer and beach volleyball, and they had like a water inflatable course. And the boys just had the time of their lives. I mean, they just played the entire day, built sandcastles. I actually had a couple minutes to sit in a chair and read, which was like amazing. Um, so we took the last ferry back to the harbor and we barely made it back on the ship. Like we were running and like we went through the metal detectors at 6.29 and the ship was supposed to leave at 6.30. <laughs> like we barely made it back to the ship. But we had fun running and laughing, and so we showered the boys, and we went up for our last dinner of the cruise. And we had a great dinner. We had a good family conversation, and the boys got up from dinner, and they ran off ahead of us, and Grant and I were following them and holding hands and walking through the buffet, and I just remember having such a content feeling, like, oh. This has been so amazing. All we had left to do was we were going to go back to the room. We were going to throw the last few things in the suitcase, tuck the boys in bed, and then we would wake up in the morning and get off the ship in Miami. So we were done. I had that feeling of, ugh, good vacation. Let's go home. And Grant followed the boys down the stairs, and I took the elevator. I was tired. <laughs> And my elevator, I was on deck 16, and the elevator opened on 11, and we heard someone yell, call 911. And so the other passengers kind of looked at each other like, well, that's not good. And the doors closed, and we went down to 10, and the doors opened, and I saw people just stopped and staring, and my heart dropped. And I thought, ugh, what am I going to see? I didn't think it was my family. It honestly didn't cross my mind because they were fine. So I go out of the elevator and I turn and there's Noah. And he's lying at the bottom of the stairs and he's not alive. And my husband was there, Grant was there, he was doing CPR. Grant, bless his heart, tried to comfort me. He's like, I think he's okay, I did 40 reps. <laughs> I'm like, okay. Um, my dad had just happened to be walking at that point in time, and so my dad was helping. He was giving the breaths while Grant did the chest compressions. And I just kept saying, what happened? 
What happened? Because he was running and laughing and he was winning the race down the stairs. Like what? It didn't make any sense because he had been fine and now he was the opposite of fine. But I knew he has a heart condition and he's had a heart condition since he was a baby. So I knew, I knew what was happening, but it just didn't make sense. So I ran over to him and I placed my hand on his chest and I just started to pray. And I prayed in tongues because I didn't have words. So I just prayed for him and I thought that he could probably hear me because he was breathing a little bit on his own. And so I just started talking to him. I said, Noah, you're doing a good job. You're doing a good job. Keep breathing. Come on. And then I couldn't look at him. (laughs) So I walked away and I was desperate in that moment. I was desperate for him to live. And I was desperate for community. I was desperate for connection. And Grant and my dad were busy. Like they were saving his life. And my other two kiddos were there. They were watching. But they're 10 and they're 6. They, they couldn't provide community for me in that minute. So I ran up and I grabbed a teenage boy. <laughs> and I was like, do you pray? Can you pray? Will you pray? And he was like, yes, ma'am. <laughs> yes, ma'am. I'm praying. I'm like, okay. Then I went up and I grabbed like this officer. (laughs) And I was like, do you pray? Do you pray? And a cruise ship is very international, the the crew. And so I'm like, I don't know who he's going to pray to, but I don't even care. Like, do you pray? Can you pray? Will you pray? And he was like, yes. I'm like, okay, fantastic. And then I would go over and I would pray for Noah some more. And then I would go grab random people and shake them. And they were so gracious to me. Um... But I needed, in that moment, community. And strangers that I didn't know provided that for me. Um, That teenage boy, his grandparents took hold of Alex and Ryan and kept hold of them and kept them safe. Uh, His dad is the one that called 911 for us. Um, It was community. So the, the paramedics arrived, which... You know, you think your kid dying in the middle of the ocean on a cruise ship is not the ideal location. Um, But had this happened in our house at school here at church, it would have taken probably 10 minutes for paramedics to come and defibrillate him. On a cruise ship, the paramedics are doctors. So there were two doctors at his side within about three minutes. So they defibrillated him. Um, My dad because his part was over. The paramedics were there. The doctors were there. My dad placed his hand on him and started to pray. And that's when his heart really started to settle in to being alive again. Um, So he was stable enough at that point to move him to the medical deck, to get him off the floor and move him up to the medical deck. But he wasn't stable. Um, There was about a 45-minute period where he was not good. And his heart was not good, and his breathing was not good, and he was vomiting, and I was not good. Um, I was stranded in the middle of the ocean. (laughs) I didn't have any internet. I couldn't call anyone. I couldn't text anyone. Grant was in the room with Noah. I was trying to be present in the waiting room with my two kids and my dad. 
and there was just a desperation. So I turned to this woman officer who I think had been assigned to me. And I just said, can I make a phone call? And she said, yeah. Who do you want to call? Oh, <laughs> who do I want to call? Who can you call in that moment? Um, so I called my brother. And it was a miracle that he answered. Because who knows what that phone number looks like on caller ID from the middle of the ocean. So he answered. And I said, it's me. And he said, who's me? <laughs> and I said, your sister. And I said, Noah had a cardiac arrest. He's alive, but I don't know if he's going to make it. I need you to pray. And he's great in a crisis. So he said, okay. And I said, I'll call you back if I can. And he said, okay. And I hung up. And he told me later that that call lasted 59 seconds. So I hung up. And I went back in the room to check on Noah, and it was not good. <laughs> and so I came back out, and I said, can I use the phone again? <laughs> she said, yes. So I tried to call Ellie, Ellie Thielen, who goes to this church, and many of you guys know. She's one of my dearest friends. I tried to call her, and she didn't answer. So I'm like, okay, let's call Lori, <laughs> one of the founding pastors. She didn't answer. I said, okay, let's call Tim, Ellie's husband. Because I was just desperate at this point for you guys, for my community, my people that know how to pray, that believe in a miracle working God to be in the know. I needed you to know. I needed you to pray. So I had left Ellie a voicemail. Not a great idea. <laughs> but she was reading the transcription of my voicemail when... Tim's phone rang. So she said, Tim, answer the phone. So I was able to talk with Tim. Tim was able to get a hold of Wilson and subsequently Van and Lori and send things out to the staff and to the prayer team. Um, Micah Turnbow had gotten a prophetic word on December 4th about Noah. This happened on January the 4th. Um, he had been, I think, praying for our family. Our family had been on his mind and he was brushing his teeth in the bathroom and the Lord spoke to him audibly and said Noah will live and he said it scared him and he threw his toothbrush <laughs> and he said God like what does that mean and God said I will walk with Noah through the valley of the shadow of death and so he went to share it with me a couple times between then and Christmas and just felt that it wasn't the time to share it with me so Micah told me when I came back home, that he got the text message about Noah and he threw his phone and he said, God, you do not lie. You are not able to lie. Noah will live. And he proclaimed life over my boy. And I found out later just how many of you were together when this happened. Family group, my people, my community, the people that love me dearly, they were together at date night. Ellie and Tim were there. So family group was able to stop and pray together for my boy. Van and Lori and Wilson, they were together at a wedding rehearsal. They were able to stop and pray together. Other people were at a concert. They were able to stop and pray together. On a Friday night, so many people were together. And I really, truly believe that's what saved him. And he pulled out of that 45 minutes and he lived.
And it's a testament to you guys and your prayers in this community. So once Noah was stable, they had to figure out how to get him off of the ship. Um, the first plan was to send a helicopter and lower a basket, but he had a tube in his throat and they were like helping him, like handbagging him. So that wasn't going to work. So the captain made the decision to turn the boat around. And so we turned around and we went back to Nassau. There were 4,000 passengers on the cruise ship. 1,500 crew. There were 5,500 people that had their lives rerouted that night. And I heard not one complaint. The captain made an announcement that it was a life or death situation and that our arrival in Miami the next day would be delayed by several hours. And that if you had an early flight, you would have to change it. So every single person on the ship knew that something was happening. I've had so many passengers from the ship find me on Facebook and tell me, we prayed the whole night. We didn't know what was happening, but we prayed. We are so glad to hear that everything worked out. And we pulled up, the ship pulled up to the harbor, and it was really eerie. It was deserted. We were the only ship because it was late at night, and... The harbor master and the immigration master or whoever had come back just for Noah and Grant and Noah were getting off and I walked off with them and I looked up and the, the decks were just lined with people just watching silently. That was community. That was community. One of the passengers I've since connected with posted this photo on Facebook of our ship's route. So the top line is when we were going out to the islands. And then we came back and went into Nassau, started to leave, and then turned back around. So she took that photo as we were re-approaching Nassau. And she posted a big, long caption, but part of the caption said, we found out it was a little boy and we don't know exactly what happened, but the captain announced this morning the boy survived. We feel so lucky that the ship turned around and was able to keep the boy alive. She <laughs> I mean, how amazing. She didn't know us. Actually, we had met her at Blue Lagoon Island, but she didn't put two and two together until much later. How sweet. Do you guys know this, the line in the song Reckless Love where it says leaves the 99? That's talking about a passage in the Bible where the shepherd leaves his 99 healthy sheep and goes after the one lost sheep. And I have always placed myself like very solidly in the flock, <laughs> mentally. Like I am a toe the line, goody two shoes, do what I'm supposed to do like I am a flock kind of girl like I am in the flock and if I'm really honest with you whenever I've heard that passage or sung the line in the song I've kind of been a little irritated <laughs> I've kind of been a little disgruntled with the one that let themselves get lost <laughs> and a little disgruntled with the shepherd and I've kind of been like hey I'm right here where you told me to be, doing what you told me to do. Why aren't you paying attention to me? I deserve some attention. Who? 
yeah, bad attitude about that. But what happened on the ship that night gave me a new perspective on the flock. I saw the graciousness of those 5,500 people. They cared about the one. They sacrificed for the one. They prayed for the one. They didn't grumble. They didn't complain. They grouped themselves together as a flock and they said, do what you need to do for my one. To the tune of missed flights, missed work, money to change their flights, long hours in the airport. The woman who posted the photo, her next Facebook post was, I've been in the airport for six hours and people are crazy. <laughs> like, I mean, they sacrificed, they gave, and they did it so graciously and so willingly. And I feel so convicted to be a better member of the flock, to be a better member of my communities. So Grant and Noah got off the boat. I had to stay on the boat. And here's where I want to come back to the layers of community. My inner circle, my people, were with me. Grant, not physically with me, but my parents, my brother, my three best friends had access to me that night. Hundreds of people at that point knew what was going on. I couldn't talk to hundreds of people personally. I couldn't do it. But those, my people, they kept, me in, they kept me sane. I didn't really sleep. And so Ellie texted with me all night. All night. Sarah Smoker, one of my other best friends, stayed up all night with her husband Dan in Colorado arranging Noah's med medevac from Nassau to the States. All night. The guy from the medevac company was amazing. He just gave Danny and Sarah permission to sign everything for us. We just gave him like, here's a picture of Noah's birth certificate. Here's our insurance card. Here's a credit card number, which then got declined because, you know, big charge. Um, so they put on their own personal credit card because they had the phone service and the hours and the time to do it. What a sacrifice. My brother stayed up all night texting with Grant, who was sitting alone in a hospital in the Bahamas with his son on a ventilator. I called my other best friend, Kelly, who lives in Wisconsin, and woke her up, clued her into what was going on. My parents traded off staying with my other two boys when my internet ran out in the middle of the night, and I went off to wander the ship. So I was like, I cannot stay in this cabin with Noah's empty bed, unable to connect. I met an amazing man in the middle of the night who was arguing with his bank over a charge for his uh, flight change. He was like, we're going to get some coffee. And he sat with me for like three hours in the middle of the night and talked to me. Mike, <laughs> he's amazing. He's, he's a friend now. My inner circle kept me sane. We arrived in Miami the next morning, and my brother who lives in New Hampshire, met us at the curb and drove us to the hospital. Sarah Smoker arrived later that day. Grant's brother and sister-in-law arrived that day. Kelly arrived a few days later. <laughs> Ellie stayed here in Cincinnati and organized things for me and kept, kept things in order. My inner circle showed up. <laughs> 
Noah was taken off the ventilator late Saturday afternoon, and tears of gratitude flowed for both Grant and I as we finally heard his voice and knew that Noah was still Noah. But community. (laughs) People cleaned my house. I didn't cook a meal for five weeks. People gave over $40,000 to a GoFundMe. Medivacs, Bahamian hospitals, and cruise ship medical care, not cheap. Not cheap. And that money gave us the ability to put it to the back of our minds and say, you know what, we'll deal with insurance later. We'll deal with this later. We'll deal with that later. It gave us the ability to be present. Some people gave a lot. Most people gave $10, $20, $15. It's $40,000. It is amazing what community can do. We saw every level of community rise up around us. Not everyone could fly to Miami and support us there. Not everyone had access to our house to clean it for us. But so many people reached out and prayed reached out in love, gave money, have prayed for us and hugged us since we've been home. And it has struck me just how wide our circles are and how those circles interact with other people's circles and then other people's circles. And it just becomes a mess of rainbow circles everywhere. Thousands of people that we've never met became our community. So community, it's built in the mundane times. It's built through daily interactions. It's built in the showing up. In checking in with each other. In saying hello on Sunday mornings when you're getting coffee. I view community almost like a structure made out of toothpicks. And every time you have an interaction with someone, a toothpick is added. And it gets higher and it gets wider. But it's not necessarily like very sturdy or very strong. But when you go through trauma, when you go through tragedy with the community, it, those toothpicks turn to steel. And the connections between them are welded together. Trauma or tragedy can reveal the structure of your community. It becomes harder to break. It becomes more brilliant. Everything that is just dross falls away. This happened in Jesus' communities. After his death and his resurrection, those disciples, his followers, they were united. The trauma of his crucifixion united them. It solidified their relationships with each other. And subsequently, those relationships were strong enough for the church to be built. And for Jesus' story to spread throughout the world. Trauma and tragedy are redeemed by our good father. Part of the redemption is the strengthening of our communities. But community, guys, it takes commitment. It takes bravery. It takes showing up. Are we showing up? Are we people that show up in people's lives? Who are we showing up for? We can't show up for everybody. But we can for our inner circle. Maybe even for two or three circles outward. Are we showing up for the mundane? For the daily things? Do you send the how are you texts? 
Do you show up here on Sundays and interact with people? Do you respond in tragedy? And even braver still, are you willing to let people in? Are you willing to be vulnerable? Do you let people help you when you need it? It's not easy. (laughs) I like to think of myself as a pretty independent, got it all together kind of girl. It's not easy for me to let people clean my house, cook for me, give me money. It takes some vulnerability. But allowing others to help in times of tragedy, or even allowing people to help on a random Tuesday when things seem to be falling apart in a very like first world problem kind of way, that's what builds relationship. That's what builds community. So lastly, I want to ask you, who's in your circles? Are the people in your circles urging you to be closer to Jesus? Are the people in your circles lovers of Jesus? Are they urging you to be a better person? Are they showing up for you? Are you showing up for them? If they're not, build some new community. Take some people from the outside circles and drag them in. (laughs) Build it through the daily texts, through the daily interactions, through showing up. And you know what? If you know Jesus, you are in Jesus' inner circle. Jesus really only has two circles now. He's got an inner circle, and he's got an outer circle. And he wants all of us that are on the inside to bring all of those that are on the outside and bring them in. Until there's only one big inner circle of people in relationship with Jesus. He wants to use you for that mission. So what's your next step? What do you need to do to build better community around yourself? To be a better part of the communities that you're already in? Do you need to join a house group? Do you need to send that text to somebody? Do you need to say yes to Jesus? Because community is where it's at. And I'm so, so thankful for this community. So Jesus, thank you for today. Thank you for these people. Thank you that they show up. (laughs) Thank you that these are people that show up. They show up in day-to-day interactions. They show up in trauma or in tragedy. Pray that you would knit us together, that you would strengthen our relationships, and that we would be equipped to go out and impact the communities around us. We love you, Jesus. Amen.